0: I'd like to continue our Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast and introduce our second guest today. Joining us from Japan is Dr. Teriyoshi Emagai, Department of Food Science and Nutrition, and Mukugawa Women's University in Nishinamiya, Japan. Dr. Amagai experienced firsthand the Great East Japan earthquake disaster in 2011. So before we continue our discussion, I'd like to ask Dr. Amagai if he has any disclosures on this topic that he'd like to share.
1: My name is Amagai, attending today from Japan. I would like to give my deep thanks to uh, Dr. Gina Tasse, a chief of nutrition and clinical practice for today's opportunity to share the finding of our manuscript. I do not have any disclosures on this topic.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Amagai, for joining me today. In your article, you explain about how the Great East Japan earthquake disaster was really a combination of three separate disasters. It was a mega earthquake followed by a tsunami and the meltdown of a nuclear power plant. Can you briefly tell our listening audience kind
1: of your experience? Generally speaking, earthquakes occur in Japan at an average of more than once a year. The Great East Japan earthquake disaster struck the northeast coast of the main island of Japan on March 11, 2011. This mega-earthquake is a bit different from the other earthquakes' experienced in several aspects. First, its magnitude of 9 is the largest to have hit Japan in the past 2000 years. Second, this earthquake triggered a tsunami because it occurred very close to the coast. One plate, geoscientifically, slipped down under the adjacent plate, then the sheer force of the event released the accumulated power. Generate the tsunami. Third, this tsunami struck the nuclear power plant, resulting in nuclear meltdown and contaminating the surrounding ground and sea water with the nuclear materials. To summarize these accidental disasters, this GED consists of a mega earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear accident all in one event. These disaster combinations have never been experienced in Japan.
0: Before these incidents occurred, did your facility or program have an emergency plan, and had you planned for those emergencies, and in what ways were those plans helpful when the actual emergency occurred?
1: A Japanese citizens are uh, looking to train to run away from disaster with training almost twice a year Mainly for fire at school and some workplaces. Public officers assist citizens with locating the closest refugee shelters. Moreover, some but not all people have made an emergency pack in which water, preserved food, and flashlight are stored. However, the opportunity we did not have made emergency plan was the nuclear accident or the tsunami that accompanies this tragic disaster.
0: As you mentioned, Dr. Amagai, that third event in the Japanese season, the Japan earthquake disaster was the meltdown of the nuclear plant. How did that affect the food supply in the area and is that still a concern today in 2014?
1: Thanks for asking such an excellent question. First, the question about the effect of the nuclear meltdown on the food supply, the answer is yes. Among radioactive nuclear materials, especially the isotope CS137, radiated from the plant is down, and was one of the greatest concerns for human health, because its radioactive half life is more than 30 years. The contaminated soil and seawater contaminated agricultural and fishery food, mainly in the area surrounding the nuclear power plant. To evaluate the safety of the food for Japanese citizens, public institute regularly collected agricultural and fishery food and measured their activity. The results were then announced to the their website and they could be accessed on demand. To the second question, whether radioactivity is still a concern today or not, the answer is no. Although cesium has a long half life, as mentioned before, the contaminated soil has has been cleaned out, and radioactive materials in seawater are diluted enough. Despite these circumstances no influence of the nuclear accident is present to the Japanese right like now.
0: Dr. Amarillo, also in your article, you analyzed the, and the food that were given after the disaster. What were your findings and how do you think the content of the food affected the recovery of the victims?
1: At the beginning of the disaster, no water, gas or electricity could be supplied. And mainly, only canned foods were provided. So, we analyzed the nutrient content involved in the canned fish compared to bird fishes. And what we could find from the results of our study were the following two facts. First, nutrients served in the canned foods were more than 50% lower than in bird fishes, including biotin, vitamin D, and B6. And the second finding was that can food had more than 200% of the sodium that the vegetables had. Of the disease. what we would emphasize is that excessive salt intake most likely affected the health of the episcopate. At the same time, we could find figure out the number of the disaster-related deaths during the years after this mega-earthquake. The largest number of the disaster-related deaths were observed in older adults. From this, we conclude that older adults were the most vulnerable to have a negative reaction to the food provisions.
0: Having been through these disasters, what recommendations would you like to bring with? In other words, Dr. Emma Guy. what can we do to avoid the hardships you have experienced?
1: I have two points to emphasize. Number one, the validation of disaster provision must be conducted to prevent nutrition-related adverse event and disaster-related death. as I mentioned in the previous question. Otherwise, we couldn't make an advance in the novel area of disaster nutrition, which is explored by several authors for this special issue of NCP. Number two, we know that almost no nutrition assessment of the victim was conducted, partly because no practical method to assess nutrition status for emergency was available, although the World Health Organization has already developed a particular device for nutrition assessment during emergency, of which the emergency nutrition assessment is considered. So the education of well-valued nutrition assessment available even during the emergency must be a focus for clinicians and researchers during non disaster period.
0: Dr. Emma, before we conclude, is there anything else that you want like to share with our listening audience?
1: What we had strongly felt during the preparation of this article was that Revalidation and re-education of nutrition provision and nutrition assessment must be considered to prepare to protect the most vulnerable persons from nutrition-related adverse events and from death caused by improper nutrition. It is important to know that we are not able to take the novel special action, especially at the acute phase of the disaster. From our study of the largest disaster, experienced in the last 2,000 years in Japan, the biggest lesson learned is that disaster nutrition must be prepared during non-disaster period of time. In other words, disaster nutrition is a mirror of non-disaster nutrition. Lastly, we would express our thanks to Dr. Gene Tasse for providing the opportunity to study an important subject of disaster nutrition. And to all of the listeners, thanks so much for giving your time.
0: Thank you much, so much, Dr. Havakai. It's amazing that we can hear from your experiences across the world. I'd like to invite our listeners to read more about Dr. Brooks' article as well as Dr. Amagai's article. His article is entitled, Nutrition in the Great East Japan Earthquake Disaster. And thank you for joining us for this podcast.